Hello, 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 and welcome back to the IBS Freedom Podcast. I am joined by the wonderful, the beautiful, the talented Amy Hollenkamp, RD. Yes. Hello, hello, everybody. So happy to be here. As you should be, because this is the place to be. We have a fun episode today because I told Amy, I was like, I'm picking the topic and I'm not going to tell you what it is. So this is going to be a surprise for you and she both. Well, actually, no, the people who are listening would have listened. They looked at the title when they clicked on today's episode. So they know and you do not. How do you feel about that, Amy? How are you feeling right now? I feel. Do you trust me? I'm feeling tense. I'm feeling tense about (laughs) just the surprise aspect of this, but I'm excited. I do trust you. Okay. So I propose that this episode, we talk about something called total microbial load. Have you heard of this or are you familiar with this? Or shall I like launch into explaining what I mean by total microbial load? I want you to give me your full, your full explanation now and I'll, I'll see how I I do. I don't know if I've heard of that term specifically. Okay. You might be able to piece it together from the sounds of it anyhow. But, you know, I feel like this is relevant even in the world of IBS and dysbiosis because oftentimes, understandably, in this world, we laser focus on one set of microbes, right? Mm. Whether we're talking about the colon, the small intestine, the gastric microbiome, all of it is the microbiome in the gut tube. But that's only one of your tubes. That's only one of the areas where you have microbes that you're interacting with. So this idea of total microbial load, and I don't even know who I borrowed this term from. I know I heard Alex Vasquez talk about it before. I don't know if he coined it or not. But it's this idea that you are um, you are getting information from and potentially inflammation triggers from all of the microbes everywhere on and in your body. So that means the microbes that live in your GI tract, which we talk about all day, every day in this this kind of world, but also the microbial dysbiosis that you might house in your mouth, mm. in your sinuses, on your skin, in your bladder, in your vaginal tract, if you have a vagina, and even, believe it or not, in your lungs, And I don't remember if I said skin. I mean, theoretically, heck, you probably have a microbiome on your eyeball also. Yeah. So it's this idea that we have all of these microbes all over us and inside of us, and they are all educating the immune system, for better or for worse. They're all interacting with the immune system. And if there is a dysbiosis or an imbalance in one of those microbiomes, then that could cause inflammation and trigger an immune response, no matter where it is. So occasionally, I do find that talking about other microbiota, aside from the gut itself, can be really helpful for people with IBS or IBD. Because again, it's like the inflammation and the immune activation from that other source of dysbiosis is contributing to things like poor motility or poor vagal tone or immune activation or mast cell activation in the gut. Like there's all of this swirly stuff that can happen when you have dysbiosis and it's not just localized to the gut. So that's the the very long-winded version of me explaining what total microbial load entails. Right. And I, um, I think too, one thing I will say is there might be connection and even communication probably between the microbiota 
on mm-hmm. each of these planes, so to speak. Like each yeah. the, the skin, the nose, the ear. I'm sure there's probably the microbiome in, oh, yeah, in the, the ear. ears. The mouth. I mean, all these things are probably communicating back and forth to each other. So again, what you're saying where... You know, the microbiome in the vaginal canal could affect the microbiome in the gut and vice yeah. versa, too. Vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think that's super interesting, an interesting um, way to, to look at it. I, I don't think I've ever heard it termed in that way before. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I don't know if it's something that Dr. Vasquez coined or if it's something that's like widely talked about outside of his work, but it made a lot of sense. And it makes this, it makes sense to me that like, it's kind of additive, right? So if you have mild dysbiosis in the gut, maybe that would be exacerbated if you also have really wicked dysbiosis in the mouth or the vagina or the lungs or wherever. And obviously right. our ability to assess those microbiota is going to be different from location to location. Even right. like the gastric microbiome, I've joked with patients before, I'm like, I cannot ask you to like swallow a Q-tip and then pull it back out with a string and mail that off to a lab. Like that, that doesn't exist. We can't sample that way. So with the gastric microbiome, the microbiome in the stomach, for example, we just have to speculate. The same thing is true for the lungs. I cannot ask you to breathe in a Q-tip and then fish it back out with a string and then mail that off to a lab like that. That's not a thing we could do. So our ability to assess some of these microbes is going to be severely limited or not at all. But there are some microbiomes like like the GI microbiome and to a certain extent, the oral, vaginal, and skin microbiota that we can try to assess or we can just try to work on some therapeutics. I think the other thing is that diet is going to most directly affect the gut microbiota as opposed to some of the other ones, which would be more of an indirect relationship probably. Yeah, and I, I think I think in particular, to me, like the mouth is especially interesting just because, you know, it's long been known that microbiota affect, you know, cavity risk and that sort of thing. Like what what microbiota you have in your mouth it determines dental health in a lot of ways. And I think there has also been a link between poor poor dental health and chronic disease across the board that's probably linked mostly to to your microbiome and what's going on in your mouth and like you were saying too that's going to feed into gut microbiota and that sort of thing so i again i think the the mouth microbiome is especially interesting to me um yeah just because there have been there have been clear links between the microbiota in the mouth and poor health in inflammation in particular, like it yeah. drives inflammation if you have, especially if you have things like bleeding gums and these microbes are getting directly into the bloodstream and causing inflammation and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I know that my I go to a, a little bit more of a hippy dippy dentist um, and he won't even work on people if their mouths are, are bleeding when they... Mm. Mm-hmm. when he's doing like an exam i think like maybe a little bit is fine but like he's yeah. really particular about like giving you education on helping you with your gum health before he'll do a cleaning so he yeah. kind of wants you to do like some prep work so that it's not like you're doing a cleaning and bleeding all over the place um yeah. when they're like uh, flossing you or that kind of stuff but mm-hmm. it, it's that whole side of the equation i think is very interesting to me yeah 
Yeah, and honestly, I want to do an entire episode on the oral microbiota and get that cooking. I I have messaged the Ask the Dentist guy on Instagram at least twice, if not three times, and he hasn't gotten back to me yet. But right. maybe I need to give up. Maybe I need to like reach out to a different holistic dentist other than him. But I would love to have like a holistic or more functional dentist come on and talk about this kind of stuff because you're right you know, how much of the oral microbiome as a good starting point, how much of that is because microbes can get into the bloodstream Mm -hmm. from like bleeding gums or because you are swallowing bacteria and critters all day, every day, because we swallow about one liter of saliva every day. And then guess where it goes? Down the esophagus, into the stomach, into the intestines, bada bing, bada boom. So it really brings up the, the question of, like how much of the inflammation link with the oral microbiome is because the microbes are getting into the blood or is it because the microbes just in the mouth are interfacing with the local immune system and creating an immune response? Or is it because you're swallowing microbes and that's getting into the GI microbiome and you're literally seeding the microbiome in the gut with whatever lives in your mouth? Mm. I think that's a little bit up for grabs still, the percentages that you could equate each to. But either way, it really paints the picture that you need to take care of this microbiome and ensure that that is healthy if you want your gut to be healthy. And I think that that one makes a heck of a lot of sense. And it's actually pretty well researched, like you said. I've also seen some cases where working on the vaginal microbiome ends up being a pretty big uh, influencer of overall health and like the inflammatory level. We'll talk about that one a little bit actually in the next episode, but twofold I'll just prime us with is that A, again, like how those microbes in the vagina are interacting with the the local immune system cells and how much inflammation is getting cooked up and then picked up in systemic circulation. Like that's one piece of it. And then that could affect your gut in a roundabout way because it's like if the vaginal dysbiosis is creating inflammation and then the inflammation is disrupting your metabolism or your blood sugar or your motility or your nervous system health, like then you're off to the races. Similarly though, and I will, I will put a, a, a not a trigger warning, but as An close asterisk. as it could be. Well, I'm going to warn people that if you are easily grossed out, this is your opportunity to fast forward about 30 seconds on your podcast app. When we women get UTIs, The bacteria that make up the UTI most frequently comes from the anus. And that's why sex is oftentimes a trigger for UTIs for women. And it's like, if you have colonic dysbiosis with a lot of E. coli, as an example, because that makes up about 90% of UTIs, if you have a lot of E. coli living in your colon, and then presumably there's some of that hanging around your anal opening, then... Assuming that you don't like completely sterilize and disinfect your entire like rectum and anus before you have sex, then the holes are so close together that any sort of frisky business down there, you're going to get a little bit of, um, shall we say, juices translating and moving back and forth. And then boom, you just colonized your urethral opening with E. coli from the rectum or the anus. And now it gets a chance to shack up further north and it causes a UTI. So Mm. gut dysbiosis can very much influence the microbiome in the urethra and presumably the vaginal opening as well. 
because again, like the three holes in female anatomy are just so close together. There's going to be some crosstalk between the three just because of the proximity. So that is something to keep in mind is that there's going to be that direct link of the gut microbiome influencing vaginal and urethral microbiota in women in particular. And then, like I said, if either of those are a source of inflammation or infection or dysbiosis, then the inflammation that and the immune activation from that can turn right back around and make your gut potentially worse. So sometimes you actually need to work on the microbiota in the vagina, the vagina or working on like, you know, somebody who says, oh, I have chronic UTIs and like every, you know, I just saw a patient like this recently. Like, oh yeah, like I get UTIs all the time if I don't take prophylactic antibiotics before I have sex. Like, okay, well that's, that's atypical. We need to work Mm -hmm. on that. And that suggests that there's some dysbiosis at play. Yeah. I actually have a loved one that did that for a while. I don't, I don't think they're doing it anymore, but yeah, I was kind of like, yikes. Seems like maybe there we could come up with a better strategy. But yeah, it's, I I think that that could be rather common. I, I hope it's not super common, but, but yeah, and, and I think, again, like, from the vaginal side of the equation, there's just so much we do to affect the pH mm-hmm. of the vaginal uh, or the vagina. Again, like, if we're using different soaps or things like that, or for kind yeah. of messing with the delicate balance that's in there. Yeah. I mean, that's even how the gut is. I mean, pH is so important yeah. in terms of what's growing and what's not. So if you're doing anything that really disrupts pH, it can be problematic for a number of reasons. So I think that that could be a big culprit from the vaginal microbiome too. Like I don't necessarily think we have the best practices in terms of preserving Mm -hmm. the vaginal microbiome when it comes to like popular hygiene practices and that kind of stuff. Yeah, it it makes sense. And honestly, too, I would argue to kind of move us on to the next microbiome that we're going to talk about, the skin like oftentimes I don't think we do a great job of shepherding Mm -hmm. the skin microbiome either. You know, even if you think that obviously I'm going to, I'll just preface with this. So I've shared before we've shared about our, our health journeys and our health histories. I had a gazillion antibiotics growing up. Like I had IV antibiotics for Lyme disease and I just thank my lucky stars every day that I'm as healthy as I am considering all of my wacky health history. And one of the things that I've always attributed it to, A, is that I think I'm pretty easygoing and I'm not I'm not terribly high strung. I don't naturally suffer from anxiety at a high level. So I, I think that's a piece of it. But I think also I grew up on a farm, literally with like horses, dogs, cats, chickens, one rooster that I absolutely hated. And he met his demise, thankfully, because he was a nasty old bird. My neighbors had a bunch of horses. My neighbors had a goat. Like I was around all of these different animals every single day. And like my idea of playing was going and like wandering around in the horse pastures and like playing in the little creek at the back of the horse pasture or, you know, like we, I'm going to paint myself um, in a very specific way here. We would play tag in the cornfield. That was great fun cornfield tag, especially at night when you can't see anybody and you have this giant <laughs> expansive cornfield was so cool. Painting the picture. Yes, I grew up in the middle of nowhere for those of you who are wondering. That um, actually sounds terrifying to me. I don't know. I'm just thinking of the movie cool. Sun. 
I'm thinking of the movie Signs where I'm thinking like there's going to be aliens or something like popping out of the cornfields. I guess you have to be confident enough that there's no like axe murderer or alien waiting for you out there. It also helped that growing up, my neighbors had five children. So it wasn't like me plus one other kid out there. It was like six of us all playing out there at the same time. So that, you know, the safety in numbers, you get that illusion of safety. But anyway, the point still stands. One of the things that I've credited to my health is that I, for all that I was killing microbes left and right all of my childhood, I was also acquiring a lot of new ones every day because I was in a dirty barn, you know, cleaning out horse manure out of the stalls. I was getting muddy and dirty and like my parents weren't really big on like hand sanitizer and that sort of stuff. Um, So I think that that really did well by me. But if you think of what's typical, especially I think it became more popular in like the 90s and early 2000s and currently, obviously, like hand sanitizer, Lysoling everything, you know, killing the 99.99% of microbes at every possible turn. And then it's no wonder that we've bred this skin dysbiosis that I think is really common for a lot of people. And then that's even before you get into the idea of slathering ourselves with parabens and phthalates and hormone disrupting chemicals and all of the perfumes and crap in all the lotions and potions we put on our body. And I say that as a former Bath and Body Works lotion addict. Like I would, you know, when they have the sales, you like you walk by to the mall and you're like, oh, like buy one, get 11 free. Cool. I would go there and I would buy like 30 bottles of lotion at once. I would stock up and then it would last me for like a year. And then I would go again at the mega sale. But I was literally slathering myself from like middle school onward with all sorts of like parabens and phthalates and perfumes and all sorts of crap. Again, it's miraculous. I'm as healthy as I am looking back, but I'm, I keep thinking like skin dysbiosis. Like, yeah, uh, well, hmm? and maybe the moral of the story, cause I was like this too. And I had tons of antibiotics. I had, I was like the strep throat kid every year, yeah. strep throat every year. I was probably more the sickest in the family. Like in terms of, mm. Uh, me and my brother, I feel like we're kind of the ones that would definitely get sick each year. But, um, I think that I, like, be just letting your kids be that sticky kid. Like, I sort of, for me, like, I think I was just always the kid that's like, uh, we're, like, not sure if she's stinky or, like, smelly or, like, she's out, you know, in the woods making forts and stuff. Yeah. Um, she's like of all the kids she's definitely like the stinky one and like the sticky one like you just can't trust you can't trust her yeah, can't trust um Amy. right and i i do think that there's probably some benefit of just letting your kid being a little stinky and sticky and not like not to like such an extreme degree but just that you let them play and get dirty and just that kind it. of stuff yeah. right um so I think there's an aspect of that that can be really, um, really helpful too. I, I I'm just picturing myself too during my dietetics internship. Um, you're supposed to again like wash your hands or sanitize before every all the time patient. So mm-hmm. like your hands would literally not even just the the killing of the microbes on the hands, but your hands would just get cracked 
ripped to shreds because it it's cold outside and you're literally lathering um hand sanitizer on your hands before every single yeah. patient you could see 20 patients in a day um yeah so you know it, it's interesting because i do think hospitals can be like some of the worst areas oh, yeah. for microbes because there's so much killing going on that you can start getting anti antibiotic resistant strains and that yeah. kind of stuff that can live on the skin and be passed to people. Um, yeah. I, I think that, you know, it's interesting too, and this goes back to the gut stuff, but things like C. diff are becoming really common spreading outside of hospitals. And there's probably an aspect of hospitals, you know, they're working with people that are in more vulnerable positions if they're in a hospital and ha having some sort of medical issue where they catch these things. And then I think people outside of the hospitals probably have weaker immune systems or weaker microbiomes to combat it. But all the the hand sanitizing and the sterilization of the environment probably doesn't help either. Yeah. Yeah, it's like... Under certain circumstances, totally get it, right? right? Like, if you do have somebody who's severely immunocompromised, or if, you know, if you're doing surgery and you're physically cutting somebody open, mm -hmm. makes a lot of sense to try to get rid of as many microbes as you can and keep things sterile. Um, but I'm just, I'm even envisioning, like, I don't know, like, if you go to the ER with, like, a broken finger, and they're just, you know, putting it in a splint and sending it home or doing the x-ray. Like, I don't know. Like, do we need that environment to be 100% devoid of microbes? Or it makes me wonder if we should be separating some of the functionality of hospitals better. Um, and right. this is, like, way beyond the scope of this podcast. But um, did I ever share with you at the very beginning of the pandemic in 2020? It was, like, the first week of April 2020. Everything was in lockdown. Everything was crazy. And... Um, our daughter really, really missed grandma and grandpa, and grandma and grandpa really, really missed her, and she's an only grandchild, so they're obsessed. And so I came up with the idea. I was like, oh, I have a fun, socially distanced activity. So I set up, we have a badminton um, net, and I set that up in the driveway, and I was like, okay, grandma and grandpa, you stay on one side of the net. Jess and I will be on the other side of the net and we will play badminton with a balloon. So, cause she was like four, right? So I was right. like, we'll play badminton with a balloon and we'll just hit it back and forth and laugh and have a good time. We're far enough apart. We, you know, we were like 20 plus feet apart. So I was like, this will be safe. Did I ever tell you what happened? My mom got, for those of you not on video right now on YouTube, you're missing out. But my mom reaches up, loses her balance fell backwards onto the pavement and caught herself with her hands, she broke not one, but both wrists. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, and like, yeah, we, we just knew. My mom was in denial because the poor woman had fractured her ankle in three places only six months prior. <laughs> and she was having like PTSD flashbacks to how horrible that was. So she's like, no, they're not broken. I'll just, I'm fine. I'm fine. And I was like, no, we have to get an x-ray just to be safe. And I, I just tried to appease her. I was like, yeah, you're right. They're not broken. But we should still get it looked at just to be safe. Internally, I'm like, they're totally broken. Or at least one of them is broken. 
And I was, there's a point to this. The point is, I looked it up because we were like, oh my God, but we can't go to the ER. It's at the height of COVID and we're all going to die and get COVID if we go to the damn ER right now. And this is probably past what like a normal urgent care could do. And they probably all have the Rona anyway. I looked it up. At least here in the Triangle, we have orthopedic urgent care locations where the only thing they handle is sprain strains and fractures. If you have, you know, respiratory symptoms or COVID symptoms or I don't even know what else, but like a gunshot wound, if you have anything else, you need to get your ass to the normal ER or a different kind of urgent care. But it was so wonderful to only have a place that specialized in orthopedic urgent care. And they were able to take care of the wrists. She had to have a surgery and they scheduled her for surgery right away. They x-rayed it. They reset one of the bones, like the whole kit and caboodle. But we didn't have to freak out about the germs and the coronavirus and all of that stuff, even at the height of the pandemic. It was wonderful. And why this is not a thing nationwide is just beyond me. It was wonderful. But presumably, you wouldn't have to keep that place quite as sterilized if you're predominantly seeing orthopedic injuries as opposed to, you know, like potentially patients who are severely immunocompromised or have something, something, you know, they're coming in for surgery or they're going to have surgery on a gut shot wound or something really invasive like that. So I think this should be more of a thing if it's if it's not already. Yeah, I'm curious, too, if you have any. I know I've used um, these products in the past. I'm not currently using them. Um, but like Mother Dirt or like some of those I've skin heard of products them. Yeah. before. I haven't used it personally. Um, that is one like body part for me that's generally been very well behaved is my skin. So right. I've never really had a desire to experiment with my skincare routine because... I just, I like do the minimum amount and it's pretty chill. Um, But, but I'll share something too. And that kind of segues into something. My in-laws made so much fun of Mike and I when we had Jess, because one of the things, and I don't, forgive me, my daughter's six and a half. I don't remember if this was something that has like hardcore research on it, or if this was like, a belief or a hunch on my part. So forgive me if this is not 100% scientifically sound. I really forget. But one of the things that we talked about was that she would not get a bath at the hospital. Right? Like some of the hippy dippier people will be like, oh, like that, the vagina cheese stuff, you know, that newborn babies have on them. Like, oh, like rub that in. That's like gold, man. Like that's the good stuff. And that's, so we had that as part of our plan. We were like, do not bathe our baby. And we even, we, we left her like that. We did not bathe her for a full week after she was born because I wanted all of those microbes to give her amazing skin. And, and honestly, like after you kind of like wipe away some of the blood and guts and stuff from the birth, like they look pretty clean. I didn't. I didn't know what the big deal was. Anyway, uh, but yeah, we like rubbed in that nice vagina cheese and let it let it give her a nice good microbiome. And I think, if I remember right, I think I read that it could decrease the risk of eczema in children if you did that. So anyway, fully endorsed that. But also, we took it to the next level. Even once we bathed the poor child, then. For the longest time, we only gave her a bath like once a month. And keep in right. mind, like with a baby, 
you're changing their diaper every day, multiple times a day, and you're using wet wipes. So, like, we were cleaning her little butthole multiple times a day, every single day. But, like, it's not like a baby sweats or runs around. I mean, we would give her a bath if she got into something, you know, like, in the moment. We would give her a bath, but otherwise, I kid you not, for, like, the first year of her life, we would give her a bath, like, once a month. Right. And my in-laws and my sister and brother-in-law were so repulsed, and they made so much fun of us because they were like, like, oh, she's give that poor kid a bath. She's so dirty. And we're like, no, she's really not dirty. She smells fine. She looks fine. But, you know, it's... and. My brother and sister-in-law had a baby not all that long after Jess was born. So uh, her cousin is close in age. And I remember, like, even back then, like, right from birth, Charlotte was a bath every single night kind of a kid. Right. And she still is. And even still to this day, it's like, yeah, like, I don't wa- I don't wash Jess's hair more than, like, once a week. Like, until it looks ratty or greasy. Like, I don't know, she looks fine. When she gets to be the age where she's sweating a lot. And she's like a grody middle schooler or something. Like as she gets older, we'll increase the frequency, obviously. But like as long as she smells fine and looks fine, I'm not going to be stripping her skin of the microbes more and the oils more than we absolutely have to because I don't want to set my kid up for dysbiosis or eczema of the skin or eczema or dysbiosis of the skin if I don't absolutely have to. So that's just those those are my grody nasty ways that uh mike's side of the family was horrified by but also even mike was like whatever it's fine like like she's three months old how dirty could she be it's fine well and i i think that there's there's a growing trend you know away from overwashing your hair or overwashing your mm-hmm. skin like i do think that tides are turning in in that area um yeah. to where you know it's becoming more common to be like oh you actually maybe shouldn't, um, you know, you should wait a little bit longer from a skin mm-hmm. standpoint to wash your body. Even stripping the oils, again, it can just change the health yeah. of the skin regardless of of the microbiome type, type effects. But mm-hmm. I, I did try the Mother Dirt products and I like mm-hmm. them. They're just very expensive. Yeah. That's the only kind of drawback there. And it's not like it's not like the ingredients are like that special, like you know, where it's like it seems pretty simple ingredients from an ingredient yeah. standpoint. So it's just like oh, I don't necessarily know yeah, like if I saw a it. benefit worth the price, but it is really interesting. Like if I was struggling a little bit more, and they sort of try to make it, at least they did in the beginning, market it kind of as a alternative to like bathing as much too. So mm-hmm. like. The especially their spray, their spray that they have actually has a microbe in it. Yeah, that's supposed to help with like smell and things like that. So I think they even did like a New York Times or something article where they had a reporter uh-huh. like not shower for a week or something and use it uh-huh. like as kind of deodorant and that kind of thing. I wonder how they made the decision who got to do that experiment. Like, okay, Cindy, you were late for the HR meeting this week, so here you. <laughs> You get right. to not shower for a week. Right. I'm a living, I'm an animated corpse. So I, like, I'm so cold all the time. I, oftentimes I get into the shower physically twice a day because, like, when I come home in the evening or at some point before bed, I need to just hop in the shower for, like, five minutes and scald the skin off my body <laughs> because I'm so cold. Like, my bones are cold and I need to just, like, I need to put the shower on like lava setting and just 
bathe in it for five right. minutes and fry myself. So I can't imagine not bathing for an entire week. I could get by with like the dirtiness factor. I wouldn't care about that quite as much, right. but like my ability to warm myself up very quickly with scalding hot water. Oh, <laughs> I need that. I'm kind of the same way. I, I like, I like taking a shower daily or like a bath daily. I don't wash my hair daily at all, but um, yeah, you know, I, I do like the warmness and the enjoyment factor of bathing. Well, I will raise you. I see you saying that you don't wash your hair every day. I will say I've only recently gotten to that point. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's because I switched shampoo and conditioner to like a bar product. Um, and I've just kind of organically learned in the last few months that since I switched over to that, um, I think it's called Super Zero, if I remember right. If anybody wants the name, just message me on Instagram. I don't even know. I think it's Super Zero. But ever since I switched to that brand, now I've noticed like on the days that I don't wash my hair, I'm surprised. I look in the mirror and I'm like, oh, you really can't tell until we get really close to like the 48 hour mark and it's time to shower again anyway. Like mm-hmm. you really can't tell. So I've actually gotten to a point now where I'm comfortable doing that, but I never could before. Like I would look like my hair was greasy. Um, but I will raise you and say... I'm painting all of these nice visuals of what you can expect in a few months. Come July, your your life is going to be so different and it's going to be wonderful and hysterical to observe. But, um, okay, so the vagina cheese, just rub that shit in real good. Give that kid the microbiome they deserve. The other thing I will say is that I became so tired when I had yeah. my kid. I was so tired. That there were certain things that I just decided were not worth the effort from right. that point on. One of them, contact lenses. I just, I honest to God, in the six and a half years since my child was born, I have worn contact lenses probably 15 times. And yeah. 100% of the time, it was like because I was going to the ocean or right. I was, you know, swimming or working out and I needed to not wear them for whatever reason. But like, I don't even have a current contact lens prescription because I never wear them anymore. But right. that was one where I was just like, nope, don't even have the time or the wherewithal. Another one was wearing earrings because also like at some point, Jess got to a point where when she was breastfeeding, she would like play with my earrings. And I got really scared that she was going to like rip them out and rip off my ear. So I decided, nope, not going to give you anything to play with. I'll pass on that. Thank you. The other thing, though, that went by the wayside as soon as I had my daughter, washing my face. Like at the time, you know, I had I had like a normal human routine of like, oh, I will use like the cleanser or whatever. And then I'll put on moisturizer and I'll do that like at the end of the day or whatever or in the shower. I forget now. And just somehow that went on the chopping block. And I literally have not washed my face since having my kid with the exception if I wear makeup, like I have those makeup removing cloths, like the microfiber or whatever. So I'll use that. And I use like, there's like a little bit of an oil kind of stuff that I get that I can get like the water resistant eyeliner off with. Um, And very occasionally, like if I wear sunscreen, I will actually wash my face with a face wash product. But other than days where I wear heavy makeup, or sunscreen, I have not washed my face in six and a half years. And my skin is so much happier not doing like the cleansers and the astringents and the lotions. I mean, I still put on lotion every day so that my skin doesn't dry out, but my skin is actually way happier now that I don't do that. 
And it was very amusing. I, fr- I think Jess was like six or nine months old. And just like one day out of the blue, I told my mom and Mike, I was like, oh, by the way, I haven't washed my face in like six months. And they were like, oh, and it was a lot of right. fun. But yeah, my skin is happier because I think I'm not stripping away those oils and I'm not stripping right. away the microbes. So I actually I have less acne and my skin is way happier now that I don't wash it. Yeah, I, again, it's it's goes back to the pH being so important, I think. I think whenever we're doing stuff, especially to the face and to skin in general, that's, that changes the pH. It's going to really just change what bugs are growing, how the skin functions, that kind of thing. So, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, you're yeah. really painting such a great picture of motherhood. I'm I'm so pumped. <laughs> Yo. Yes. Um, and actually that, well, that will segue in a second to the next microbiome I want to talk about. There's so many. There's so, so many. But briefly, I'll weigh in and like put a plug in for the nutrition world. Nutrition can affect the skin too. Like obviously there's the, the, um, the connectedness with the gut microbiome and oftentimes treating the gut microbiome will help resolve skin problems. But... Um, also think about things like you need to have enough healthy fat in your diet and protein and zinc and vitamin A, like you definitely need enough of nutrition and nutrients to build healthy skin, even beyond the microbiome kind of conversation. So keep that in mind too. Did I leave out any nutrients? Those are the big four that I would think of for skin integrity specifically. Yeah, those are the big, big ones I think of. I think vitamin A is really big. I get KP on my arms if... Mm-hmm. Um, keratosis pilaris. Mm-hmm. I, I'll get that on my arms. They're kind of like little red bumps if you're not familiar yep. with them, but I'll get it on my arms more if if my vitamin A is getting a little bit low. Um, mm-hmm. And again, I have the weird genetic snip that makes yeah, me a little bit BCMO more susceptible one. to vitamin yeah. A issues. So um, I think your dead on nutrition certainly can, can play a, a bigger role in skin health too. Yeah. And really, again, every every aspect of health you know i mean yeah you heard it here on the ibs freedom podcast folks nutrition's uh, kind of a big deal nutrition philosophy around yep yep but then that leads us into the breast microbiome we didn't even talk about this in the beginning of the episode so again as you get into breastfeeding you'll you know there is a a little bit of research now on the breast microbiome itself. And then you're actually transferring microbes from the breast milk to the baby, not just prebiotics, but what's really freaking creepy. I remember coming across this. There was at least one study that suggested that when you take a probiotic, the actual probiotic bacteria somehow make it to the breast. Mm. Creepy AF. Because then it, you know, it's like, how? How is that happening? Like, do the bacteria catch a lift, catch a ride on the lymphatic network, the blood vessels? Do they just magically, like, teleport to the boob? Like, how is this happening? And I'll weigh in that that also seems to happen with the the vaginal microbiome as well. If you take Mm -hmm. an oral probiotic, that particular strain shows up later in the vagina and it's creepy AF because it makes you wonder, how's it getting there? Again, is it like Houdini? Like, poof, I'm, I'm, I'm here now. Poof. 
Right. Or is it hitching a ride on some of the vessels in the body or the nerves? Like, we don't know yet. But it does seem that when you take a probiotic, some amount less than 100.00% of that bacteria ends up elsewhere in the body. And it's weird and fascinating and a little bit creepy. But boob is one area where those bacteria can swim over to, and then you can transfer some of those probiotics to the baby. Ooh. Little little boob probiotics for yep. for little little lassie or lad. Yep, exactly. And I pray that as you uh, give birth to your young one, I pray that you don't have to know the sheer terror that is mastitis. Because, oh, God. oh my God. Or candida of the breast and the nipple. Oh, Oh, my friend had a lot of like the candida infection in the breast and the nipple, and it was such a bugger to treat. Um, I had mastitis, I think, once. And uh, I'll just throw this out there, too. How much of mastitis is microbial versus just inflammatory versus other factors? I don't know. Um, But I remember I was trying all the things like I... um, I'm trying to think of which which ones I did first. I, heat is what they usually say to do. So I remember I was like in a hot shower with like the water running, running over me. And they say to take like a wide tooth comb and like kind of, it sounds weird, but like comb the boob a little bit like right. towards the nipple to try to get like the, because the idea is that it's clogged milk and then you could get it to like go down right. towards the nipple and you're supposed to like breastfeed or pump super, super frequently to try to get the clog, the clog out of the duct work. And then I did that for probably like a day or two and it was super miserable. Then just to throw this out there for that particular mastitis bout, I just randomly, like, I think I talked to a different IBCLC and she was like, try cold. And I put like some frozen peas or whatever over that lump. Almost immediately problem was resolved. And I was like, really? (laughs) I, it was like two days of misery and panic, wondering if I'd have to go on antibiotics or something, or wondering if I would dry up all my milk supply. And then a bag of cold peas for 20 minutes and the problem just poof, went away. So that, for me, that particular one seemed to be more inflammatory than anything else. Um, but for what it's worth, I think there is like a microbial component and an inflammatory component with mastitis a lot of the time, um, for what it's worth. Yeah. Yeah. I think that you're, I think you're right. I, I, I hope that I don't have to deal with any of that. I know my, I think my sister had a little bit of like the, the fungal, Mm. she had a weird little rash and I don't know if it was like, I don't know if it was directly on the boob. Like to me, it seemed like more chest Mm. in Mm. general, like not necessarily boob, but chest. Um, and, um, it was a pain to get rid of. Um, I, I know that. And it took them a while to diagnose it, too, mm. which is weird. Um, yeah. But, yeah, hopefully I don't have to deal with any of that. Let's see. Let's see. I'm sure there's going to be some sort of hiccups. Uh, it's just hopefully not the mastitis sorts. Yeah. But we'll just play it by ear. There are a few types of pain that are more panic-inducing than boob pain. Like, I don't know, something about that. You're just like, oh! Like, well, it's funny. It my um, my mom always talks about when she had us, she would get a lot of boob pain. And, like, 
it like just got to the point where she just like did not care like she would be if like even wearing a shirt hurt so she'd just kind of be walking around shirtless and she said like one time my my her mother-in-law so my grandma came over my dad's mom she just opened the door no shirt (laughs) she's like did not care (laughs) and my mother-in-law was like oh my god like what's happening over here yeah because like of course the whole street could have seen my mom yep um but yeah she just like could not tolerate anything like laying on her she was just so over it she's like i'm just going shirtless like throughout the day well i have a pro tip for you look we have taken a solid boob tangent here on the ibs freedom podcast and it is it is a good one um i will throw out another idea i'm I'm looking for a prop looking for a prop i don't know if i'm gonna find one that's gonna work for what i'm going for here hold on let's see well I'll just share um, what I did at various points if I was having problems is I would take some Tupperware containers that are like yay big, maybe, you know, you could vary it depending on your needs. But I, I found some round Tupperware containers and I wore like a really loose baggy sports bra that had zero support whatsoever. It was just flapping in the breeze at that point. So I put on the sports bra and then I put these Tupperware containers in the sports bra. Oh my gosh. Like directly over my nipples. And it looked ridiculous, but <laughs> it kept like nothing could touch my nipples. It was right? like a because, cup, like, but for your boobs. Yeah, like a, exactly. Like a... It kept it because I had a similar problem, especially in the beginning where like, nothing could touch my nipples without causing horrible pain. And so I just, I put those Tupperwares in that big baggy sports bra and I just walked around. I was like, yeah, this works. Oh my gosh. And I lived my life for like a week or two like that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh, motherhood. Anyway, let's, uh, we'll get off the topic of the boobs for those of you who either don't have them or are uninterested in this conversation. Um, uh, Ping ponging around the body a little bit more uh sinuses and like nasal microbiome we should have probably talked about this one after the mouth microbiome but whatever we're here now um as somebody who is a chronic sinus person i definitely have experience in this arena but like i said keep in mind the oral microbiome and the nasal microbiome all kind of like it's it's the same general vicinity they all kind of communicate with each other in that area and the ears for that matter um, I know that there is a probiotic that has been shown, like it would be in a chewable or a lozenge, but there's a probiotic that's been shown to decrease the incidence of ear infections in kids. And I think also strep throat. I can't swear to that though. Um, so that's something to know, which again suggests that some of the microbes like in the mouth and the throat are probably getting up the eustachian tube, going like up, up into the ear that way. Um, and then similarly, um, I, I know that there are some probiotics, especially one that's derived out of kimchi, I believe, like either probiotics or kimchi itself can help with sinus stuff. And again, it's like some of those microbes probably gravitate up into the nasal cavity from the oral cavity and influence the microbiome in the nasal cavity, which is pretty cool and also kind of creepy. Yeah, it's so interesting too cuz I've <laughs> I've worked with some clients that have more sinus issues and sometimes they're doing 
I almost call it, it it looks a little precarious, but they're like taking a probiotic powder and inhaling it orally. Looks a little bit like cocaine. Um, Don't do it at a crowded place in the comfort of your own home. Um, But again, I got that exact one. Yeah, I I don't know if I've necessarily been super great at tracking the success of that. Mm. Um, Or again, like, what strains, again, are going to be more beneficial than others. I don't know if I've really dug as deep on that where I could just off the top of my head say. But it is kind of interesting, the strategy of inoculating the nasal cavity. Um, I will add... Sorry to cut you off if I did. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I, I, it just came to mind. Some people recommend doing that with Megaspore. Honestly, that creeps me right out. Like, I don't know if the spore formers are supposed to be in the nasal cavity. I'm not even, mm-hmm. a, I'm not even a raving fan of using Megaspore specifically for gut problems and IBS. Honestly, like, it's not that I'm, I don't know. I, I have a whole assorted opinion on Megaspore specifically as a product, but I've, I've been surprised on multiple occasions. I've gone into like practitioner forums even, and I've looked up like sinus infection protocols and a shocking amount of practitioners say, oh, just break open a Megaspore capsule and like stick it up your nose. And I'm like, ah, that seems like right. a really bad idea. There's absolutely no research to back this up. And it just, it kind of feels like like, did you learn this from a rep from the company at some point? Is this just a ploy to get you to buy more Megaspore? Like, yeah, you could use it to clean your windows, too. Isn't that great? Here, buy more. Like, I don't know. It just kind of feels like the company trying to egg you on to purchase way more of the product than you actually need. Um, but there is one. The one I was referring to is called Lactosinus. And mm. it's specifically formulated for sinus issues And it's a strain of of bacteria that's found in kimchi. And that, it comes as powder. Um, If you follow the directions or if you talk to the company, they say that you're just supposed to take it orally and like kind of like let it be in your saliva, in your mouth for a little while. Like don't wash it down with water. Just like put it in your mouth and kind of like, you know, like that for a little while. Right. Um, I remember I talked to somebody and I was like, could you theoretically like put a little bit of this up your nose? And they were like, we can't recommend that, but theoretically sure. Um, Like that. I think they were kind of getting at like, yes, but we can't legally tell you to do that. So you figure it out. Um, But that's the one I would envision more. So I personally, when I have tried it that way, a, I have not found it to work for me personally for what it's worth. I've only tried it twice. I think the other thing was, um, I don't do it like a line of cocaine. <laughs> um, I just like what I did was like, I, I just moistened like the tip of a Q-tip a little tiny right. bit, you know, with like a dab of water or something. Right. And then I put the Q-tip in some of the powder and then I just put the Q-tip in my nose right. as deep as I could comfortably and kind of like, you know, like a COVID test, like wiggle right. it around a little bit, pluck it out and then away you go. Um, so that's how I did it personally. But that probably wouldn't get it like up into the sinuses versus a powder. If you inhale a powder, you could probably get it in deeper. But I've never thought to even do that. I just put it on a Q-tip. Um, but I didn't it's find so it very helpful for you. me. I know. I know. Well, well, it depends because then you're pulling out a Q-tip with your boogers on it. So I don't know. Is that really more civilized? Than I don't know. Now just snorting it. grossing me out now. Fun fact. Um, 
So I, my, one of my first loves was anatomy. Honestly, if it wasn't for the smell of the formaldehyde in the anatomy lab, I totally would have gone on to get my PhD in anatomy just so I could be like a dissection geek and like work in a dissection lab because I loved it. But um, so there's a, again, if you're not on video on YouTube, you're missing out. So there's an area right there where the thumb is, where there's, there's a tendon on either side. And then there's like the wrist bone here and it makes a triangle. And then if you put your finger right on that triangle area, you could feel your pulse inside that triangle. That's called the anatomical snuff box, which always amused me. But the reason it's called the anatomical snuff box is because I guess when people do drugs, I'm presuming cocaine, I don't even know. When people are doing drugs, you can literally like make a little pocket to put the drug in and then you can sniff it. So apparently that's a real thing. So fun anatomy lesson and, and don't drug do drugs. lesson. Yeah, don't do drugs. Um, but if you do, use your anatomical snuff box. Apparently, because that's that's apparently what it was named after. Um, okay, and I will I'll throw this out there too. Um, we have fewer prebiotic and probiotic tools that we could apply directly to some of these areas. So like, you know, there's the the mist that you could put on your skin. But other than that, it's a little bit of the wild, wild west. Um, there yeah. are some probiotics for vaginal health, but there's few and far between. There's the one that was specifically formulated for sinus issues, lactositis, but that's the only one I know about. Um, there's the one that can help with ear infections, but that's the only one I know about. Um, I would say, you know, the question of can we use prebiotics to nurture the good bacteria on on the skin or in some of these microbiomes is even trickier because I don't think we know. Um, I don't think I've ever heard of skin prebiotics before, although I would love that to be developed. Um, I've actually seen some skincare products yeah. that are slated to have prebiotics in them. I think they're probably newer. Yeah. It's usually like moisturizers or lotions or something that that have a little bit of like a prebiotic in them. Again, I don't necessarily know if we've been able to really target or have researched those products where they're like targeting specific skin microbes. Um, I do know like the- a neat idea though. Yeah, it really is. The mother dirt people I know- the specific probiotic that's in that is like pretty unique. I forget what strain it is, but it's nothing that's used in the gut. It's something that they kind of isolated from the skin. Um, yeah. I think like they sort of researched people that just like don't wash their face. Like again, like tribal communities. Like that me? Just, like... Oh, well, no. Yeah. I don't live in a tribe. Yeah. I cut the mustard. Yeah. But the the tribal communities... Like, in people, again, it's kind of fascinating to look at tribal communities and that kind of thing, where they, like, don't brush their teeth, where they don't wash their face, where they're surrounded by dirt, and again, like, their skin, yeah. they don't have any skin issues or dental issues or that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so, it, it's fascinating to look at those populations, but they sort of use those populations as, like, their basis of, like, well, what's different? And they kind of isolated that particular um, strain and I think that you probably have to do a similar thing with the prebiotic arm 
of of strategies for the skin is really understanding like what microbes make the biggest difference to healthy skin and trying to work into ways to feed those. And that might be different than the prebiotics that work in the gut. It probably just takes a little bit more nuance. Um, and again, yeah. I, I don't necessarily know if we've totally mapped. It might be an area I just haven't gone down quite yet, but we've totally mapped the skin microbiome to the point where we can really isolate, like, this is really health-promoting or this is not health-promoting on the skin. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we've we've got as as far, I mean, even in the gut health space, we've come a long way, but there's still so much to learn. Yeah, I think we're absolutely. even less to that point um, with the skin microbiome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of these other microbiota for that matter, too. Um, I can't really envision like, like getting a bunch of inulin and like slathering it on your skin, for example, or snorting inulin. Like I can't really wrap my head around that. Um, But there's probably something like there's probably something in like soil or, or animal droppings or plant materials that can confer some sort of prebiotic effect for those microbes that are normally found like on the skin or the sinuses. Um, or even, I kind of almost wonder, this is a new new budding theory. Feel free to run with this and research this if anybody does research. What if pollen, like from the air, what if pollen could be like a prebiotic for some bacteria in the nose or the lungs? Right? And then it's like, maybe the presence of the pollen isn't a bad thing. Maybe it could be a good thing, but maybe it's the immune response against the pollen that we should be investigating more. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. That's kind of like, I'm trying to think of what else would be in the air that could be well, prebiotic for those microbiota. Well, one thing too is I know that there's a microbiologist. He used to write a lot more. I, I haven't followed him recently. His name's Jeff Leach. Have you heard of him? I don't think so, but I'm also he not super le- good with names. Okay, he did work on like the human microbiota project and he he was someone who like would go and live with the Hasda tribe for like 3 months at a time and test his microbiome the whole time cuz he would eat what they eat and then like mm-hmm. live how they lived and sort of just see how his own microbiota change over time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um so he was really interesting because he said one of the best things you can do for your microbiota is go outside and just mm-hmm. breathe because the amount of bacteria and probiotics in the air is going to be unmatched to anything like inside. Like you'll just get a, a diversity of microbes from just going outside and breathing in the air, which could yeah. potentially again have a big effect on your nasal microbiome, but also your gut microbiome. Yeah. Again, it's it's this idea of total microbial load. Like it's the totality of your microbes and what they are telling your immune system and what they are doing to your inflammatory load that ends up influencing your physiology. Um, sometimes it's a direct a direct kind of relationship. Um, sometimes it's indirect. But I think that it's uh, being open minded to that certainly. And here's the thing too: is like it's not gonna. It's never a bad idea to go outside more. Right. Or hardly ever. I mean, maybe if you're in like Anchorage, Alaska, and it's the dead of winter, and you don't have a proper winter coat, like I could see some scenarios like that. But for the most part, getting human beings outside more is going to be a really solid idea. Um, and again, like maybe that was a piece of it too for me. Like, thank God that I grew up in a 
gross, dirty old barn with like horse manure and cats and cat dander and dogs and chickens and all all of this stuff. <laughs> My husband grew up in the suburbs, you know, like, you know, two kids, one dog, picket fence, you know, mm-hmm. like suburban lifestyle. And I grew up in the boonies. And he like still to this day, he would probably be visibly repulsed if I describe this. But like my favorite activity when I was a kid, all the way up through my teens, was that we had feral cats in the in the barn. And I would sit on the floor in the nasty, dirty old barn with like, you know, like shavings and hay and bits of horse manure and probably cat poop. I don't even know. Like, you know, it's it's God knows what was in there. A lot of dirt, a lot of dander. And I would sit on the floor of the dirty old barn and I would wait there with like some canned cat food on a little plate. And I would sit there like a statue until a cat was brave enough to come near me to get some of the canned food. And I would let it have a bite or two. And then I would pet the cat and it would freak out and it would run away. And then I would wait like a statue until a cat got brave enough. And I would do that for hours on end. And I would just wait for the cats to come close enough to me that I could pet them. And it was my life's mission to tame all of the feral cats we had in the barn. I succeeded with precisely one cat. And it was because I got to her when she was still a kitten. (laughs) So I kind of cheated. I never was able to tame an adult cat using these methods, but it was damn fun trying. And, you know, I think about like, again, sitting on the filthy floor of the barn. Yeah. <laughs> so many microbes in the air and on the floor and like on my jeans and on my boots. And, and yeah, it was probably hella gross, but also I probably picked up some really good microbes and that kept me as healthy as I am. Like, I can't imagine having my health history and all those antibiotics and also like growing up in a city. I can't imagine right. what would right. what would happen with that. Um, so yeah. So um, the uh, one thing I wanted to share though about the sinus microbiome, there's a whole wide world awaiting us, Amy. It's out there if you want to seek it. And that is the wide and wondrous world of nasal sprays. There's so many. And there's so many compounds. You can put anything up your nose now, I swear. I have, because when I do get sick, things like to gravitate to my sinuses. That's just what I've learned about myself. Um, I have lungs of a champion, but the sinuses are like, wham, puffy. So I have a library of sinus sprays now. I have an entire drawer of nasal sprays. But interestingly, one of the ones that, that is out there that I personally have not found a lot of success with, but other people have is xylitol nasal spray. Hmm. Interesting. And it makes you wonder xylitol gum, which funny enough, I keep in my drawer, like xylitol chewing gum has been shown to be a prebiotic for good microbes in the mouth. And it helps Mm -hmm. decrease the incidence of gingivitis and cavities because it's a prebiotic for the oral microbes. And then similarly, some companies developed xylitol nasal spray for sinus infections, and it makes you wonder, oh, it maybe it's not killing the bad microbes, maybe it's feeding the good guys, but that's the only true like direct probiotic that I'm or prebiotic that I'm aware of as far as like what could be in nasal sprays. Um, otherwise I think most other stuff that I have in that drawer is antimicrobial in nature. Like I have one that's a Manuka honey nasal spray. Mm. Oh, oh, that one's good. It burns, but it's good. That'll clear you out real quick. 
Um, oh my god. What else? There's, I mean, there's a whole bunch of them. There is, do you remember, they're, I get the perception that they're not as popular anymore, but they're still around. You remember the product that was called Restore, and now it's called mm. Ion, I think? Yep. Yep. I, I've only had, I had a couple of patients who thought that it was wonderful, and I've had probably more patients who thought that it didn't do anything for them, and it was kind mm. of expensive, so I haven't really ever recommended it much. Right. Um. But during one of my many sinus infections a few years ago, I found out that that company makes a nasal spray. And if you look at the Amazon reviews, they are very impressive Amazon Mm. reviews. Granted, it's Amazon, so maybe we can't trust it. But they seem genuine. Um, Again, this is another one that's like in my supplement graveyard. I did not find it super helpful when I have sinus problems. But a lot of other people have found it beneficial. But I wonder, like, whatever is in that ion restore stuff. I think the idea behind it is that it's more of like a prebiotic and like a leaky gut healer upper, if I remember correctly. Question yeah. mark. Do you remember? So, and I did, I actually have done the ion spray. I actually find that it helps a bit. I wouldn't say mm-hmm. I typically have like major nasal issues either. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I don't know if I'm necessarily the best candidate to judge. Well, I'm probably um, not either because my sinus stuff goes off the hook when it is active. So okay, it, it might be I, that we're at the two extremes of the scale, and we need somebody in between us to right, really judge. Right. Um. And you know, it's not overly expensive. So some I have recommended mm-hmm. it to a few people that I'm like, well, like you know, some of the stuff you're not working, you could try this and see if it helps. But um, I think with the I think it's like a fulvic and humic acid type supplement so there could be a variety of ways it could be helping um from a microbiome standpoint and just like an inflammation standpoint but Mm. yeah again i i found it i found it somewhat helpful um when i've had some sinus stuff but i'm not someone that typically is like has a lot of bad allergies that affect my nasal cavity um I I used it more recently. I got sick kind of earlier on in my pregnancy. And I wonder if I had like Omicron or something or mm. COVID at some point in there. I did test myself, but it was an expired test. So mm-hmm. <laughs> who knows how accurate it was yeah. um, or if I timed it right. But like I had a, uh, I was sick for like a good three week period where I was just really tired and it was hard because it was early in the pregnancy. So it's like, you don't know if it's just like weird pregnancy stuff kicking up, but yeah. I had a lot of sinus related stuff kicking up around that time, which mm. sometimes pregnancy can actually ramp up sinus stuff too. Um, so I don't know. That was a weird thing because I typically don't get like sinus blockage or that kind of stuff mm. yeah. um, super often. Yeah, it is interesting. So, pregnancy is a wild card. Like, it can honestly do anything. Right, right. By the way, I just, I had a weird thought pop into my brain. This should not be surprising to any of our listeners that I said that statement. There might be, because I think we've covered all of the microbiota that we can talk about. Again, we've speculated ear and lungs. I know precisely nothing about the lung microbiome, so I'm not even going to try to talk about that. Um, I do know that you can use some herbs and some supplements like glutathione in a nebulizer. Mm-hmm. 
whether that's working on a microbial kind of front or other it by another mechanism is up for grabs depending on the herb or the compound that you're using but you can put a lot of weird stuff in nebulizers and get it into the lungs um but again like my ability to talk about the microbiome in the lung is very very limited um i i'll throw out this and then i will tell you what my weird thought was did i ever tell you that my ear doctor has said that i have yeast in my ear Girl, this is interesting because I, I had this period of time, I think it was in seventh grade, where my eardrum burst. So I will say it was probably the most painful thing that's ever happened to me. Like, I feel like there was some trauma there when that happened. But then when it burst, there was a lot of fluid in my ear. And so, like, my doctor, my doctor... And, like, my ENT, like, called my pediatrician and chewed him out for this because he did this. But he had this little, like, water gun. (laughs) So he would, like, shoot the gunk out of my ear with the water gun. Wait, when you had the perforated eardrum? It was sort of, like, as it was healing. But, like, when it healed, it there was, again, like, yeast and stuff just in my ear growing. Yeah. And, like, so he there was gu- all this gunk, and, like, it was draining and draining and draining. Ew. So he was trying to get stuff out with this water gun. And my ENT called my pediatrician, according to my mom, and just, like, chewed him out. Rightly um, so. Because, again, she's like, you never put moisture in the ear. Um, Not willingly. To, to clean it out. So, um but yeah, it was a whole ordeal. It was it took forever because then I had to put like stuff in the ear. I don't even know. Like I'd have to go back and tr- talk probably, to my mom a little bit about. It probably took twice as long to heal because the this Jamo was like squirting a squirt gun of water in your damn ear. Right. Like, right. oh my gosh. So, but yeah, it was a nightmare because then we had to like put this powder in my ear to kind of like dry uh-huh. it out and then. Yep. Um, you know, I had to go, my ENT was really good. She actually lived on my street. Um, so it was nice. Like there were a couple times she just like brought stuff, like samples and stuff Mm -hmm. swung by Mm -hmm. her house, um, to drop stuff off. But yeah, it was, it was a whole ordeal, but I definitely had yeast in my ears. Yeah. Um, Well, funny. Look, like we're twinsies in so many oddball ways. Who knew? mm -hmm. So, um, but most people on here know I have a perforated eardrum on both sides. The The big hole is on the right. And it's the right ear where he always is commenting that I have some yeast growth. And it wasn't until I think like the last appointment or maybe the one before when I, I finally asked, I was like, why do I get yeast in that ear? Like, that's gross. And he said, oh, it's probably because of the perforation. Because it's like 50% of my eardrum is gone, or rather the width of the hole is about 50% of the width of my eardrum. That's the better way to phrase it. So he's like, so you're probably getting moist air exchange from the middle ear and the eustachian tube coming up and like basically keeping the innermost part of the external ear really moist. You know, like the part right up against the eardrum, basically, like that deep area of your ear canal is probably extra moist because of the hole. And therefore, it's creating a good breeding ground for the yeast. But he has commented, he thinks that if I get 
the whole repair that the yeast problem will be much better or go away. Um, so yeah, but did I tell you, I have to, I decided I'm going to reschedule my surgery again. (laughs) It was actually supposed to be in February. Then I, I pushed it back because I'm, I'm traveling and I need to be able to fly. And now I, I was going to do it in April. And now because we found out that I have to move not only our house, we had found that out a little while ago, we have to move houses, but also we're moving me out of my office in a few weeks. And it's just like all of this, pardon my French, but all of this clusterfuck (laughs) happening in the scheduling this spring. I was like, I cannot also have surgery. Like that's nuts. So anyway, and I refuse to get surgery done in the summer because I don't want to be hauled up on my couch watching Umbrella Academy and eating I don't even know. Like I'm trying. I was gonna say Doritos, but then I was like, I can't bonbons. eat Doritos. I feel like that's that's what my like the old timey. Yeah, that's bonbons like what my would old timey dad says. Like, what are you gonna do? Sit on the couch and eat bonbons? Yeah, that would have been a better one. The one that came to mind was Doritos, and I was like, I can't even eat Doritos because of the dairy. <laughs> and then I was gonna say cheese doodles, and I was like, like I don't even even if I could eat dairy, I wouldn't eat cheese doodles again. I would I would demolish a bag of Doritos though. I'm not gonna lie. So cool ranch or traditional? I was more of a traditional girl, personally. Me too. I, but I, I would settle cool for ranch. cool ranch. Like they were good, they just weren't my top pick. Right. They have some like dairy free, gluten free varieties now that are okay, but they're just not quite the same. But anyway, we digress. Um but yeah, the point is I'm not gonna be hauled up on my couch eating bonbons for two weeks, healing a damn eardrum when it's beautiful outside and I could go like hike and play with my kid outside. So I think I'm gonna push it back to like November, December, January, or something of next uh-huh. year, and well, I was going wanted... to could do it when I was giving birth, but that would be the summer. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I'm not sacrificing my summer. No, I think dead of winter, so that if I don't leave the house and I don't bathe for two whole weeks, it's no harm, no foul. What, what's like the dead of winter for you, like like temperature wise? Is it bad or? Well, it it depends. Like for here in North Carolina. Right? Like, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, is it like... Honestly, now-ish, like January, February is what we could call dead of winter. It fluctuates all the time. Like we, this morning when we packed up Jeff's for school, it was like 27 degrees. And then, but this afternoon, it's going to get up to like 52 or 55. So it's like, okay, it starts off really cold and then it gets pretty Okay. We had a fluke day, I think, last week where it got up to, like, 60, and it was really nice. And it only got down to, like, a low of 40, which was amazing. But then there are other days where it's, you know, a low in, like, the mid to high 20s, and then it only gets up into the 40s during the day. So I don't even know. I don't know. Right. North Carolina is confusing. But I would take the confusing North Carolina weather over actually getting snow any day. Like, I'm, I'm done with the whole snow scenario. So I'm cool with the amount of snow we get here. <laughs> Right, right. But I have told my husband, we didn't move far enough south. And I keep asking him, I'm like, how do you feel about Miami? Tampa? <laughs> like, where in Florida would you like to move? Because that's where your corpse bride needs to live so that I'm not cold all the time. Right. Right. So we'll see. We'll see. I could get really good Cuban food if I moved to Miami, though. And that's highly appealing. But I don't mm. think it's going to happen. So I'll have to I'm settle sorry. for traveling occasionally. It's okay. It's okay. I'll deal. I have hot showers and heated blankets and space heaters to keep me warm if I need. 
Well, if I lived in Miami, I'd probably die 20 years earlier just with my skin. My skin would you be like- destroyed. Both yeah. of my parents have little skin cancer spots everywhere, so that would You're probably not be the best. The best a pale, a pale Paula of the world. Right, right. Well, well, my darling, shall I tell you my weirdo thought that popped into my brain to kind of put a bow on this this episode of Total Microbial Load? Yes. Okay, she gave me permission, people. You heard it. Do you think it's possible to have dysbiosis of the belly button microbiome? Okay, you know how I feel about belly buttons. <laughs> and the time is coming. Do you remember this I conversation? I forgot about your belly button thing, actually. So go ahead and tell the people at home. I'm very out. nervous about my belly button becoming an Audi. Because, so I have multiple reasons. I have... I swear to God, a scar in there from, I feel like my umbilical cord like fell out too soon or something or got like yanked off too soon. Okay. But I think I have like a little scar in there and I can't get like quite a good look at it until it becomes an Audi. So that makes it especially nerve wracking. How do you know that you have a scar in there? I can see it. I can see it. It's like a little. But can you? I can. I swear to God. (laughs) I'll just send you a picture or something when, once it reveals itself. Okay. Once it reveals okay. itself. The big reveal. I don't know. I, I'm guessing you could probably have disposes of your of your belly button hole. I mean, it is it is a microbial breeding ground for that. That much I am sure of. I'm looking at mine. Still an innie, but it's, it's, it's still an innie. Mine too. Mine's, mine's an innie for those of you who are wondering but I'm not pregnant. So it's not, not that fascinating to talk about my belly button. Well, we people make a note that if Amy develops an Audi belly button, we must ridicule her on public platforms and social media the world over. So we will make sure she rue the day that she developed an Audi, but no, I'm kidding. We would never, but, but yeah, it kind of, it begs the question. Like, I wonder if we could have dysbiosis of the belly button or, or, I wonder if we could use the belly button as a source for microbes that we could then use elsewhere. So what if we like scoop out a bit of belly button microbes, smear it on your anatomical snuff box, and then <laughs> snort it into your sinuses? I or think what that if- we've gone, I think we've taken a step too far down the crazy train <laughs> not in this episode. Or Q-tip, get some of it out there, and then just give oh, it a no. little licky-loo. Oh, no. You'll get some lint up your nose, too. Or if you, you know, put it you got to make nose. sacrifices. How much do you want good microbes, Amy? You flew well, and how had can a poop we ensure, How can you we ensure that the belly poop? button has good... So what I'm hearing is you are willing to go pay money to have somebody else's poop, put up your pooper, but you're not willing to just lick a little bit of belly button lint i don't trust my belly button (laughs) (laughs) that's what it is that's why you have such a belly button problem you don't trust it (gasps) yeah oh okay your exercise for today go home you're already home whatever go home and tonight i want you to look at that belly button and 10 different times i want to i want you to say i love you belly button you are beautiful okay i will do that perfect 
Perfect. All right. Make well, it I've got you make it. That's right. I've got nothing else as far as the microbes. I think that you know the only other one we could maybe touch on is toe jam, but I don't know if that's much different than like. And that, actually, that does bring me to, to something else, though. Believe it or not. So the skin microbiome, we can kind of talk about it like it's all the same thing, but there are different microbes living in different areas of your skin microbiome. So theoretically, you know, if you, again, like if you harvest some microbes from your armpit skin microbiome and then smear that on your face, because, you know, people do that, and smear that on your face, you could create dysbiosis on your face because you transplanted weird atypical microbes Mm. from your armpits. Similarly, if you take that belly button goo and you smear it on your forehead, you could give yourself skin dysbiosis, even though you're transferring skin microbes to the skin. So you've got to keep in mind that like the location of the skin dysbiosis can matter quite a lot, like face versus armpits versus your back versus your belly button versus your toe jam probably all makes a difference. True. And now I think I'm officially out of canon yes, for this we episode. Probably, we've probably taken it just too far a couple times, but it's okay. Sometimes we got to take it there. You know, we are we are cutting edge here on the IBS Freedom Podcast. And by God, if we don't have these conversations about belly button dysbiosis and toe jam dysbiosis, then who will? That is true. that is the question. So I'm happy that we can bring cutted, cutting edge and bizarre conversations to our listeners, which I'm sure they cherish very deeply. But guys, as always, thank you for tuning in for this weird but hopefully useful episode of the IBS Freedom Podcast. Again, like kind of one of the morals of the story with this whole world is that anything that causes inflammation or wonky immune activation could affect your whole body. And that includes your gut. So I think that we really need to take a holistic lens when we talk about dysbiosis and the microbiome in the gut. And all of these different types of dysbiosis can impact your gut potentially. So be open-minded to exploring that a bit and evaluate which ones of the ones we talked about today might be worth a little bit of TLC. Go get dirty, go roll around in some filth on our behalf, and we will see you in the next episode of the IBS Freedom Podcast.